Hey everyone, uh, welcome to RUF. My name is Thomas, I'm the campus minister here if I haven't met you. Uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so whether you're here tonight and you're feeling like you're a good person or you're feeling like you're a bad person, uh, you need the same thing. You need Jesus. Uh, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's all about Jesus. It's not about your performance. And at RUF, that's what we're here to remind you of, week in and week out. Uh, and every semester in RUF, we go through a sermon series. This semester, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed in a series that we're calling uh, A Better Story. A Better Story. And our theme has been that the Apostles' Creed tells us a better story that accounts for our glory and our shame. It gives us the ability to live with resilience in the present, and it gives us sure hope for the future. Uh, and if you've been with us at all this semester, so this is our third week coming in. Uh, so we see here, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's what we've covered thus far. We looked at what does it mean to believe? Uh, we looked we, and we understood that believing is receiving and resting. It's receiving and resting in Jesus alone for salvation. And then last week, we looked at God the Father Almighty, and we, we discovered that believing in God the Father Almighty means believing in a Father who is at the same time gentle and just. And this week, we're going to be looking at Psalm 8, which Gracia just read for us, and we're going to unpack what it means that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, and I just want to give you a disclaimer. Uh, when you see maker of heaven and earth, you might be like thinking, okay, we're going to talk about creation and we're going to get into like this big debate over how old the earth is or, you know, what it was made and how it was made. I'm going to disappoint you terribly if that's what you're expecting. That's not what we're going to be talking about. I think those are important questions and I would love to talk to you about that at some other point. But I think what gets lost in the, the fact that this topic is kind of so fraught talking about creation is what are the implications of the fact that God created the heavens and the earth? What are the implications of the fact that God is the creator? What does that mean for how we live our lives? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So we're going to see two things as we look at this passage. So we're just going to look at it under these headings. Uh, first, God creates, and second, God delegates. So God creates and God delegates. So let me uh, pause and pray, and then we can get going. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, Lord, we are here uh, because that is true. Or maybe we're here because we're searching for whether that actually is true. Um, Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would meet us. Lord, that you would meet us, that you would show us Jesus. Uh, Lord, we are weary. Um, we are um, ready for the weekend in lots of ways. So, Lord, I pray that you would just meet us and that you would show us who you are. And you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first thing we're looking at here uh, is God creates. God creates. So, we see this all throughout this psalm. Uh, but in the opening verse, it starts this way. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about Lord as being kind of a designation for God. Sometimes it can just be used as a stand-in for saying, like, God is king. But then other times, it's a designation for God's covenant name, Yahweh. And what we see here is both of those. So we see, O Yahweh, O covenant God, our Lord, our king. God is immediately described in this passage as he is both powerful and beautiful. He is the king. 
and he is our covenant Lord. And then it goes on to say, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Uh, What do you think of when you hear the word majestic? What comes to mind? Uh, I know for me, I think of Molly and I went on a trip a couple summers ago. We went to Arches National Park, uh, and there is a, a hike there called the Delicate Arch Trail. It's, uh, if you've ever seen the Utah license plate, it has Delicate Arch on it. It's this really beautiful kind of uh, scene at the end of the hike. But you go all the way up, you're really high up, and you have this overlook that has Delicate Arch, and it's got these beautiful snow-capped mountains. Molly and I called them Himalayas, even though I know that's not true. But it's got these beautiful snow-capped mountains off in the distance. And it's just something that makes you go like, wow. You just, you, you look at it and it's just, it's awe-inspiring. That's kind of what majestic means. Uh, in the original language, it means something like noble, something like excellent, magnificent. So starting off, we see the Lord, it, he is both, our, he is our king, he is our covenant God, he is powerful, he is beautiful. And then it moves on in verse 3 and kind of talks about the experience of looking out at God's creation. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So this is just kind of imagine looking out at a night sky and you just see the vastness. That's what the psalm kind of invites us to do, to imagine. Uh, the heavens here are portrayed as the work of God's fingers. They are, they are artfully arranged. They're set in a particular place. There's nothing random about it. We see from this that God, he is an artful creator. I think oftentimes when we look at the world around us, uh, and no shade on engineers, we tend to think that God is an engineer, right? That he just, he makes things work, but he's not really concerned with making them beautiful. Uh, but that's not the picture that we see here. We see that God, of course, he makes things work. God is an engineer, yes, but he's also something like a designer. He has an aesthetic sensibility about him. He puts something here and not there. He makes things beautiful when he didn't have to. And this is a huge difference from creation narratives at the time. Uh, in the ancient world, a lot of the creation stories that people would kind of come up with and tell, were, they were kind of centered on chaos. There was some sort of chaos, whether it was between dark and light, or some sort of chaos between these two opposing forces, and then they clashed, and what came out of that is the world that we see around us. And they were trying to kind of make sense of all the chaos that they see in the world around them. But the story of creation in the Bible is nothing like that. It's harmonious. It's God speaking, and the world comes into being. You don't get the sense that if you read Genesis 1 and 2, that creating the universe was something that was very difficult for God. It's something that he just did by speaking. He spoke, and it was. So that's what God did in creation. And then kind of the experience that we see here of looking at creation, it leads to this natural question that we see in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Uh, the psalm is using the language of man and the son of man. It says he and him. Uh, it's just trying to describe humanity there. So some translations, if you look at the NIV, it just says human beings. That's what's implied here. So essentially, the, the person writing this psalm, David, is asking, what, what are human beings? Like when I see the vastness of all of creation, what are human beings? Have you ever had an experience like that? Like maybe whether it's being out in nature Uh, and you just see something that is just beautiful. Or if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, like you just look at it, and you're like, what do I matter 
compared to this. Like, this is huge. It's glorious. Or maybe you have that feeling when you're like at a Nebraska football game when you just look and there are 80,000 other people, 80,000 different stories, all considering themselves to be really important. You might ask the question like, who am I? Do I really matter when there's 80,000 other people just right here? Not to, not to imagine all the other people in the world as well. Who am I? Do I matter? You might be tempted to think like in the grand scheme of things, I'm just a speck of dust. Like, does anything that I do really matter? That's the question that the psalm is kind of asking. Uh, fortunately, it doesn't leave us kind of in this existential crisis. Like, it doesn't make it, like, encourage us to go put a beret on and go smoke cigarettes because everything's going to hell in a handbasket. That's not what it's trying to do here. Um, it's giving us a picture of, of the vastness of creation and who we are in response to that. It says in verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings crowned him with glory and honor. So creation is this vast thing that God has put together artfully. And there is a sense that we, when we look at it, we understand that we aren't anything in comparison to it. We're so small. But yet we see in verse 5, it says that God has crowned us with glory and honor. What does it mean to be crowned with glory and honor? Uh, It means that God has declared human beings to be the pinnacle of creation, to be the most important thing in the world, Uh, to be crowned with glory. Glory in uh, the Hebrew, it just means weight. It means heaviness. So when it talks about God being glorious, it, it literally says that God is heavy, that he matters, that he takes up space. And here that language is applied to human beings the same language that is normally applied to God. And then it says honor, glory and honor. Uh, Honor here is actually the same root word for majesty that we see in the first verse. The Lord's name is majestic. Here that's applied to human beings. What is this saying? This is saying what theologians are called the image of God. God made us in his image. That there's something about us that reflects who God is. Anything in all of creation, no matter how glorious, from God's perspective, is not as glorious as you are. Not as glorious as human beings. So God made us in his image. What's the takeaway from, like, from this? What, what is kind of the ground level? What does this change for us? Why does it matter that God creates and that he creates us in his image? Um, so I went to a uh, public high school after attending private school uh, for most of my life. And when you say, when I say private school, uh, let me disabuse you of the, you know, like really nice, huge private school. Like there were small Christian schools. So like 80 people, you know? And then I go to this public high school and it was, I think like 1600 people. And so I made this transition after eighth grade, heading into freshman year of high school. And I don't know if you remember what you were like when you were in that transition of like eighth grade to freshman year. Maybe it was a great time for you it was not for me. Uh, I was not exactly at my like peak. I, I like to think I haven't peaked yet, but I certainly, <laughs> certainly had not peaked at that time in my life. Um, I was just awkward. Like I was growing and I just didn't really know what to do with it. My voice was changing, all sorts of problems. And so there's me who is from this tiny school going into this big public school. But I did have one thing going for me at this school. Uh, my oldest bro- or my middle brother actually was a senior there. Uh, And not only, he wasn't just like any senior, he was like a starting football player, okay? 
And he's like, you know, even though I'm like kind of awkward and pudgy at this time in life, my brother is like tall and like starts for the football team. Everybody likes him. Everybody knows him. And so when I stepped on campus, uh, to my surprise, uh, people knew me. They kind of knew who I was. And in fact, they started calling me Little Coon because uh, Coon's my last name. And they called my older brother Coon. So when people looked at me, they saw my brother. I was still this awkward kid. Like, I was still not in a good stage of life. But when people look at me, they saw my brother. So to put it another way, like, my five-foot frame carried the weight of a six-foot, 250-pound football star. When people looked at me, they saw my brother. And I think this is what it means to be created in the image of God. It means that when we look at ourselves we should see the pinnacle of all of creation. We should see royalty. We should see dignity. And I wonder if we've ever really kind of taken the opportunity to let that sink in. Like, how would it feel if you viewed yourself that way? How would your life be different? Would it change the way that you lived? Would it change uh, the sort of relationships that you seek out? Would it change how hard you are on your body? Like how you look in the mirror and you just don't like what you see? You see someone who needs to lose weight or someone who needs to gain some weight. Like would it change how you view yourself if you were able to look at yourself and see what God sees? Because what God sees is glory and honor. God looks at you and sees you as the pinnacle of creation. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. So God creates... Uh, But that's not all that we see here. Not only does God create, we see that he delegates. This is our second point here. God delegates. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in any sort of leadership position. Um, I guess as a lot of you have, because y'all are a lot more driven than I was uh, until now in my life, really. Uh, But being in a leadership position where someone kind of gives you a task to do that is too big for you to do by yourself. And so they give you a team of people that you're kind of in control of. Uh, It is really, really hard to look at that task, come up with a plan, and try and figure out, okay, what's the gifting of all the different people that I have on my team, and how can I give them things that they can just own so that we can get this big task done? It's hard to delegate. It takes a lot of creativity. It takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of knowledge of people. And what I want to see when we look at this second part of this passage is that God looks at humanity. He looks at his image bearers and he says, I know exactly what I'll have you do. God is a delegator. We see this in verse 6. It says, You have given him, that is humanity, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So God here gives dominion to humanity. Uh, What does dominion mean? Dominion, it, it just means royal authority. It means the ability to rule. God gives human beings the ability to reflect his rule in all of creation. And then it says, you have put all things under his feet. What does it mean for something to be under your feet? Uh, In the ancient world, this meant kind of that you were seated on a throne, basically. Everything that was under your feet was what you ruled over. So it's a royal position. God gives royal authority and royal position. Uh, It kind of reminds me, so uh, you've probably heard me talk about my one-year-old daughter, Louise. You're going to hear it more. 
Um, but we've kind of gotten in this trend where she will eat at her little uh, table or her little chair right next to the table, and I'll like clean her off, and then I'll take her and I'll set her on top of the table for a minute. And her reaction is just hilarious uh, from this vantage point that she never sits on. So she just sits there, and for a second, she just like kind of looks, surveys like everything that is now underneath her, and then inevitably she just looks at it and she's like. <laughs> right okay what i want you to see is like that is the posture that god wants us to have in this world that's what it means that all of creation is under our feet it means that we can survey the world around us and, and we can know that god has made us rulers over this world that he has given us dignity he has given us responsibility to reflect him he calls us to bear his image in our ruling of creation uh, and we bear god's image in our work, in what we do, in your schoolwork. This is why, uh, if you're an accounting major, perhaps you feel God's pleasure when you make a really good spreadsheet. Some of you might feel that. I cannot relate to that at all. Uh, this is why, you know, your heart sings when you solve that math problem. See, these things feel good because what you're doing is you're exercising dominion you are exercising the dominion over the works of God's hands. It should feel good because you're doing what you're created to do. But I do want to make one really important point with this. Uh, we do bear God's image as we exercise authority, as we rule with dominion, and yet we are not God. We do bear his authority, but we are not God himself. Now, why is this such an important distinction uh, to make? Um, if you follow me on any social media, specifically maybe Be Real, you will know that I watch Top Chef all the time. <laughs> it's like, that's all I do. Um, like, if you were to ask me what I did this summer, I'd say Top Chef, because that's what I did. Molly and I just watched Top Chef. But if you're unfamiliar with it, it's kind of like a reality cooking show uh, where you have something like 15 different chefs. They come together and they do all of these different challenges. And at the end, someone is crowned Top Chef, and they're given like $125,000 from the Glad family of plasticware or something <laughs> like that. Um, but inevitably in Top Chef, late in each season, there is a challenge called Restaurant Wars. And Restaurant Wars, they break up all of the chefs into two teams, and it is their job to go from zero to restaurant in like 24 hours. So they have to plan a menu, they have to have someone who is kind of the executive, the executive chef, the sous chef, which is number two. They have to have someone who does front of house, someone who does decor. And it's always really interesting to see the way that people like try to divide labor. Um, and the, the most interesting thing is to see how people either move towards or away from the executive chef position. Because the executive chef, like if they do well, all the glory in the world is yours. But if they do poorly, they're the one who's going home. They're the one who's getting eliminated. And so a lot of people gravitate towards being the sous chef, being the number two. Here's what I want you to see, okay? Being made in the image of God, it means that we are kind of like a cosmic sous chef. It means that we are a sous chef in this world. We are the number two. And I think if we understand this properly, I think it should both humble us and liberate us. Uh, it like reminds me of the quote from the uh, psychologist in Ted Lasso, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. I think that's kind of how this truth works for us. It, it, it humbles us on the one hand because it tells us, I am not the center of the universe. I am not the center of the universe. Being a, a cosmic sous chef, being made in God's image means that you are not the center of the universe, God is. 
It means ultimately life is not about you. It means, uh, and this one I think can be really difficult, that the thing that makes your heart sing, like your creative work, the thing that you're really good at, it means that ultimately that's not about you. That the greatest end in your life is not self-expression. It's actually reflecting God. And I think this is really tough in all of life. Like, this is tough for me as like a a 30-something young dad Like, it's very easy for me to just, like, try to curate my life to where it's just all about me. Like, it's all about having, like, a perfect lawn. It's all about having the new gadgets at home. I mean, we just bought a new washer and dryer, and I'm like, but I really want the one that, like, I can control with my phone. Like, it's it's so easy to, like, curate your life, make everything about you. And, And I think about you guys in college. Like, it is so easy to just make your entire life about you, about your assignments, about the connections that you're making, about the internship that you're going to get. Like, everything is geared towards making our lives about us. So it's humbling that the the universe doesn't revolve around us, that we're made in God's image. It's about him, not us. But I think on the flip side, it's actually liberating. It's liberating. I think it's liberating because uh, if we understand that we are made in the image of God, If we truly understand that, what that means is I don't bear the weight of holding everything in the universe together. God does. I don't bear the weight of that. I don't have to constantly try and justify my existence. I don't have to constantly look inward to see if I can just find some sort of inspiration and express who I am and throw it out there and hopefully people like me. I don't have to do that if I understand that I am made in God's image and that my dignity comes from what God says about me. It comes from what he says about me. And I think when this sinks in, uh, this has a lot of implications. Uh, But two, I just want to kind of point out, I think this means that we can enjoy our work without being dominated by it. We can enjoy our work without being dominated by it. Why? Well, think about it. it. If you understand that you are created in God's image, if you understand that you are created to rule and you're created to reflect him, then your schoolwork is important. It doesn't devalue your schoolwork, but it means that it's not the most fundamental thing about who you are. It actually puts it in a different order. It means that you don't have to be the person who like grandstands in class and talks about the fact that you've read Aristotle. Uh, Even more than that, it means that you don't have to be the person who like hates on the guy who grandstands in class because you understand that you're made of the same stuff that he or she is. See, we don't have to hate the person who just, like, gets it. Like, in our math class, the person who is just so easy for them. We don't have to hate them. Because it's not most fundamental to who we are. We don't have to be dominated by our work. And second, I think uh, this has implications for how we do relationships. I think a big tendency that I see, both in myself and in a lot of folks, is there's this tendency to, like, over-function, to hold things together. What I mean by that is there's this tendency in relationships to just, like, hold other people's stuff and do things for them, to, to take up too much space in relationships, because if you don't do everything for people, they're just going to leave you. They're just going to leave. And some of us have good reason to think that way, but I think if we understand who we are, if we understand who God has made us to be, we can risk being ourselves. We can risk being ourselves in friendships. We can tell a friend when they said something and it hurt. We can risk that. I think it can take the pressure off when we think about something like dating, too. 
Because when we look at dating, we're thinking, well, I don't have to anxiously try and lock down someone who is going to affirm me. I don't have to find someone who is just going to make my heart sing. Because we know God is the one who does that. We don't have to look for affirmation in dating. We don't have to look for affirmation in friendships. We can look for it in God himself, which ironically enables us to be better friends. Enables us to live our lives in a way that is much less controlled by anxiety. All right, so let's put everything together here. Uh, We've seen from this psalm that God is a creator and that God is a delegator. Uh, We've seen that God creates us in his image and he gives us royal authority to express over all of creation. And yet, even as we're talking about this authority and this dignity that we have, it's not really hard to look for a place where that's abused. Like I just heard yesterday about a, a mass shooting in Memphis. Uh, We hear about all sorts of things. We hear about sex trafficking. Like, anytime you see the Super Bowl, it's like, oh, I hope you're enjoying the Super Bowl. This is like the number one sex trafficking event in the world. Like, we see that sort of thing happening everywhere. We see child labor. We see rampant pollution. We see overproducing and overconsuming. And that's just in the culture around us. What about in our own hearts? How often have we used the God-given authority and power that we have to manipulate other people? How often have we not cared about people who are inconvenient for us? How often have we used the power that God has given us to create comfort, to stay away from suffering because it's uncomfortable, at the expense of other people often? So I think the question needs to be asked, like, how in the world can God still look at us and see glory and honor? When oftentimes, when we look in the mirror, when we turn on the news, All we see is shame. How can God see glory? I think uh, we can find this answer in Jesus. The author of Hebrews uh, reflects on this psalm, and he says this, But we see him for a little while, uh, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You can hear the language of this psalm that we're looking at tonight in that, can't you? Jesus is the one who was made lower than the angels. He was the one who was crowned with glory and honor. But it says something surprising, because of the suffering of death. We see in this passage that Jesus is the perfect image bearer. He perfectly reflected who God is. He perfectly reflected his royal authority. And yet he suffered death. Like what in the world could make Jesus do something like that? Uh, I know today the the royals are in the news, um, the English royals, unfortunately, with Queen Elizabeth passing away. Um, But I heard a story once uh, about King Edward VIII. Uh, He was uh, kind of famous because he actually stepped down from the throne, uh, the king, to to no longer really even be a royal anymore. So he was uh, crowned king in, I believe, 1935 or maybe 1936. But then at the end of 1936, he stepped down. And it was kind of the first time that that had happened in a long time. And the reason that he stepped down was because of a woman named Wallace Simpson. Wallace Simpson. And uh, he was in love with her. But she was not exactly the type of person that uh, the the crown wanted surrounding them. Uh, She didn't have much going for her. She was divorced. Uh, She was American. 
Uh, yeah, gasp, right? Um, she was the type of person that you would see in tabloids. Like, not, not the person that, like, the establishment across the pond would want to have in the royal family. And so they tried to put pressure on King Edward, and they basically made him choose. Do you want to be king, or do you want to be married to Wallace? And what did he do? He abdicated the throne. See, Edward looked at all of the glories, all of the royal authority that he had, and he said no, because he found something greater. He found something he loved more. And what I want to leave you with is the fact that Jesus has done the same thing. That Jesus had all of the royal authority, Jesus had all of the benefits in the world, and he laid it aside for something greater. And that something greater was you. Jesus did that for us. You see, Jesus reflected God perfectly, yet he willingly underwent death on the cross in order to have what he considered to be the most significant thing in the world, you and me. See, in his death, Jesus takes the penalty for our failure to image God properly, for our failure to reflect him. And yet in his resurrection, Jesus restores us to the significance that we were made for, to ruling and reigning with him. And I just want to ask, uh, I feel like I'm going to be asking this every week, but as we think about this, uh, this story that we're telling through the Apostles' Creed, is this a story that you want to be a part of? Is this a story that, that makes you feel alive? Well, this is a story that the God of the universe invites you into.